So anyway, thanks very much, Anna, and also thanks to Anna and Brian for inviting us here. It's been really stimulating. Uh, today I'm talking about metaphysical indeterminacy, and so just to start by getting clearer, uh, as, uh, by way of contrast to certain other kinds of indeterminacy that might be at issue, there's, might, reasonably think three potential sources of indeterminacy uh, one concerning how we represent the world which might go by way of uh, semantic or representational indeterminacy that's probably the most common approach uh, another source concerns the limits of our knowledge of the world epistemic indeterminacy of the Williamsonian variety for example and the sort that's at issue in this talk how the world is in and of itself that is to say metaphysical indeterminacy. So why think that there is any metaphysical indeterminacy? Well, some motivations are that uh, it seems that material objects are not associated with precise boundaries. So here I am scratching away the molecules of the table, and yet has the table uh, gone out of existence and new replaced by a new table? Seemingly not. Um, there's metaphysical indeterminacy associated with variety sequences, uh, predicates such as baldness and, and the like. Um, I will be talking about those two sources, potential sources of metaphysical indeterminacy. There's other uh, potential motivations as well that I won't have time to talk about today, but we can uh, discuss those in Q&A if you like. So um, certain open future claims of the, for example, Aristotle's uh, concern about whether there will be a sea battle tomorrow, um, and perhaps quantum phenomena such as superpositions, at least on certain understandings uh, or certain interpretations of, of the physics involved. But as I say, I wouldn't have time to talk about those today. Um, notwithstanding that there are uh, a variety of motivations for metaphysical indeterminacy, many have found the notion to be pro uh, problematic. Evans argues that metaphysical indeterminacy gives rise to contradiction. Uh, Lewis uh, claimed that there's, we don't have any clear conception of metaphysical indeterminacy, and so we should reject it. And Dummett uh, claimed that metaphysical indeterminacy is not properly intelligible. So recently, though, uh, especially in the vicinity of Leeds, there's been uh, a lot of really interesting effort in trying to make sense of metaphysical indeterminacy that would apply to some or all of the motivating cases. And, um, you know, I'm happy to see metaphysical indeterminacy getting some attention. I don't think that the efforts are satisfactory really satisfactory for reasons that I'll mention in passing. But my, uh, my aim here is, is not primarily critical, but I just want to offer an alternative account. So by way of situating the sort of account that I will be offering, I want to uh, make a distinction between uh, two sorts of approaches to metaphysical indeterminacy. In nearly every uh, account of metaphysical indeterminacy, uh, whether uh, offered by a proponent or discussed by an opponent, has understood metaphysical indeterminacy to involve um, what Basically, indeterminacy, as I sometimes will gesturally refer to it, indeterminacy in which of various determinate states of affairs obtain. Um, here, by the way, I'm just using state of affairs as an ontological catch-all term. Um, the uh, indeterminacy of this sort, it will typically come down to indeterminacy in a property, but 
nothing really hangs on that. On my account, by way of contrast, what it is for a state of affairs to be metaphysically indeterminate is for it to be determinate, or just plain true, that an indeterminate state of affairs obtains. More specifically, I'm going to argue that uh, cases of metaphysical indeterminacy can be seen as grounded in the existence of a determinable state of affairs that, depending on the sort of case that is, that is at issue, uh, is either not further determined or else is multiply determined. Shocking, I know. But I will try to motivate uh, those expansions of the traditional understanding of the determinable-determinant relation shortly. So I sometimes refer to the first sort of account according which metaphysical indeterminacy involves it being indeterminate, which of various determinate states of affairs holds as a meta-level account, and the second sort of account of the sort, the sort I endorse as locating metaphysical indeterminacy at the object level, but uh, the meta-level, object-level distinction here doesn't really have anything to do with language. It's just a tag. So what I'd like to start out by doing is first uh, just mention some of the existing meta-level accounts, uh, so you'll start to see the pattern. Um, then I'm going to present my alternative object-level based account, or determinable based account, on which metaphysical indeterminacy, again, involves its being determinate or just plain true that a determinable state of affairs having certain features obtains. I'm going to draw on some of my previous work here in which I argue that determinable states of affairs may be as fundamental as their corresponding determinate states of affairs, which is sort of crucial that determinables aren't reducible to determinants. Um, then I'm going to argue that my account makes uh, good systematic sense of certain of the, the phenomena that motivate metaphys- accounts of metaphysical indeterminacy in the first place while also evading certain serious difficulties that have been pressed against metaphysical indeterminacy. So uh, starting with uh, just by registering that meta-level accounts have been effectively hegemonic, Consider Evans's famous argument against metaphysical indeterminacy. Um, I'm going to address this in more detail later, but here I just want to point out that when he sets up his argument, he assumes that commitment to vague objects invokes commitment to ontically indeterminate identities. So now why should we assume that that is the case? Well, what sort of account of metaphysical indeterminacy is Evans presupposing? Plausibly, he's assuming that for an object A to have an indeterminate boundary, that's the focus of his attention, an object that has an indeterminate boundary, is for it to be indeterminate which of various determinate boundaries that object has, such that what it comes for, it comes to for A to be vague, for this object A to be vague, is for it to be indeterminate which determinately boundaried object A is identical. So, in other words, Evans is plausibly assuming that uh, metaphysical indeterminacy is meta-level. Um, the same is true of Parsons and Woodruff's account of metaphysical indeterminacy. So, for example, when they present a Tibbles the Cat version of the problem of the many, they say the P-cats are definitely distinct from one another, but there may be no answer to the question of whether the cat itself is identical with P-cat number nine and so on for all the others. So the P-cats are precise cats or cat candidates, and the metaphysical indeterminacy of Tibbles 
in their view, explicitly involves its being indeterminate to which of the various determinate PCATS tibbles is identical. Um, David Barnett has a sui generis account of vagueness um, according to which uh, if it is vague, whether P, then either P or not P, even though it's vague, which, and it's either true or false, that P, even though it's vague, which. So again, here, metaphysical indeterminacy is taken to involve, it's being indeterminate, which of various determinate truths or associated states of affairs obtains. Um, more recently, to uh, advert to some of the Leeds crew, um, Elizabeth Barnes and Robbie Williams have a modal precisificational approach, which is effectively a form of metaphysically interpreted supervaluationism. So in their view, um, there, there's a space of precisificationally possible worlds, uh, which are assumed to all be maximal and classical. And then the idea is that when matters are metaphysically indeterminate, it is indeterminate which of these perfectly determinate worlds obtains. Again, meta-level. And there's other cases I could mention as well. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, semantic and epistemic accounts of vagueness are also meta-level accounts. Um, <clears throat> Uh, again, like with the supervaluationist super accounts, the standard way of approaching semantic vagueness or representational vagueness, uh, the idea is that, you know, there are these precisifications of our language and the reason a given term is presently vague is because we just haven't decided which of those uh, determinate uh, precisifications is going to be associated with our term. Okay. So why have so many endorsed meta-level approaches, in particular to metaphysical indeterminacy, well, one reason is that uh, it's just assumed that, at least at the fundamental level, uh, states of affairs or associated entities are perfectly precise. So Lewis says in a famous quotation, the only intelligible account of vagueness locates it in our thought and language. The reason it's vague where the outback begins is not that there's this thing, the outback, with imprecise borders, Rather, there are many things, precise things, with different borders, and nobody's been fool enough to try to enforce a choice of one of them as the official referent of the word outback. So fans of metaphysical indeterminacy will disagree with Lewis that the world must be a fully determinate array of determinate facts or things. So, say, Rosen and Smith, for example, but they agree that there isn't, they agree with Lewis that there isn't this thing with imprecise borders. They rather think that the world can be an indeterminate array of determinate facts or things. So again, you know, for, focusing on the meta-level approach, metaphysical interpretations of the usual semantic approach. And there's, as far as I can tell, just there's just been one uh, previous object-level account of metaphysical indeterminacy, but this one was was distinctive in a way it was also a, a reflected a certain failure. Um, the idea is that uh, J.A. Burgess looks through a bunch of meta-level accounts. He doesn't think they work, so he says, I guess we better take metaphysical indeterminacy at object-level face value. There really is indeterminacy in first-order, so to speak, states of affairs, and that's just primitive. But... Um, you know, there are primitives and, and there are primitives, at least with respect to um, Barnes and, and her, co her collaborators. They also think that 
metaphysical indeterminacy is, is primitive ultimately, but in uh, endorsing a meta-level account, they get to help themselves to all these structural, modal, and supervaluational resources to describe how the indeterminacy arises and so on. So, you know, their account is primitive. Uh, it adverts to primitive indeterminacy, but it has a claim to be illuminating um, and that there's quite a lot they can say about it. But um, this one previous object-level account it doesn't have, doesn't uh, discuss anything like that. It's just basically, uh, it's primitive and there's an end to it. So, no wonder perhaps then that no one has endorsed an object level account. So, this is where I think that uh, attention to determinables may be useful. So, uh, no one, as far as I can tell, has suggested that determinables might be useful for characterizing metaphysical indeterminacy, but Perhaps, I speculate, one reason for this neglect, even though you might think that a natural interpretation of metaphysical indeterminacy would involve, you know, determinable states of affairs, is that almost everyone has assumed that determinables are either eliminable or else they're reducible. More commonly, people will think they're reducible to determinants, um, or even if they're not reducible in some or other sense, they're non-fundamental relative to determinants. So the idea is just that determinables are kind of abstract shadows. Sorry, determinables are abstract shadows of determinant states of affairs. And what really exists are the perfectly precise states of affairs. And, you know, we may abstract, but in the world it's all ultimately determinant. And determinant stuff is bossing things around. But if we suppose, as I've argued, that determinables exist and are not just abstract shadows of determinants, then, uh, so I'll now uh, try to try to suggest, uh, they can provide a basis for a, a quite a different account of metaphysical indeterminacy than we've previously seen. So just by way of motivating the idea that um, the sort the conception of determinables I have in mind is one um, that I argued for in a recent paper, according to which, as I say, determinables can be fundamental or as fundamental as their associate, associated determinants. And uh, I do this for properties and their instances, but the arguments extend to other categories. Um, just very briefly, because I am going to appeal heavily now to this idea of potentially fundamental determinables or irreducible determinables, etc. I'll just sketch that argument very quickly. Um, I first argue that determinable properties exist and they're not irreducible to determinant properties. Uh, they're not, in other words, identical to any lightweight Boolean, mariological, or just conjunctive uh, um, jointly holding combination of determinant properties. Um, I then argue against the main lines of thought that existing irreducible determinables are less fundamental than associated determinants. And the most important of the arguments to that effect is what I call the argument from fixing. According to once, we, once you fix, once you, uh, fix the determinant facts, the determinable facts just come for free. So I'm going to very briefly sketch my response to that argument since otherwise uh, my count is ungrounded. So the claim is that determinants cannot ground certain modal facts about determinables. So consider a patch that's red and also happens to be scarlet. Does the patches being scarlet ground the patches being red 
in the strong sense that we're going beyond mere supervenience in particular, that the former constitutes the latter such that the latter, the determinable instance, is merely an abstract shadow of the former? Well, I claim no, because the red instance, unlike the scarlet instance, is of a type that might be otherwise determined. The scarlet instance cannot ground this constitutive fact about the red instance because the scarlet instance is not of a type, right, that it could be otherwise determined. Uh, instances of scarlet must be scarlet. They can't be burgundy, for example. So there's this fact about the red instance, namely that it's of this type that is modally flexible in a certain kind of way, and the scarlet instance, it seems, cannot ground that modal fact. Now, there are some more complex determinant properties that could account for that modal fact. So, for example, a disjunction of determinants is such that any instance of the disjunction is of a type that might be otherwise determined if a different disjunct were instanced. Good. But any such complex determinant properties will be, or so I claim, less natural, more gerrymandered, such as to make for less similarity among particulars and, crucially, among properties than the determinable property. So, given that naturalness is an apt criterion of fundamentality, any complex determinant that's capable of grounding this modal fact about the red instance will be less fundamental than the determinable itself. So, that's basically why I argue that determinables can be as fundamental as determinants, namely that the determinants themselves are not suited to ground certain modal facts about determinables. So, could it be that indeterminate states of affairs are determinable states of affairs? Um, well, I suggest uh, yes. This, and this opens up a new object-level strategy for thinking about metaphysical indeterminacy, according to which some or all of the cases that motivate metaphysical indeterminacy involve a determinable state of affairs. So in the usual case, it's going to involve the having of a determinable property. Okay, so more specifically, the account is as follows. What it is for a state of affairs to be metaphysically indeterminate at a time t is for the state of affairs to constitutively involve a determinable instance that is either and then there are these two cases, depending on the sort of metaphysical indeterminacy that's at issue. It's either one, multiply determined at T, or two, not further determined at T. And uh, just as an aside, the multiple determination in the first condition uh, may be actual in some cases and merely potential in others. It will sort of depend. And also just to prefigure clause one, allows for treatment of glutty indeterminacy, and clause two allows for treatment of gappy indeterminacy. So just thinking ahead a bit, I mean, one of the nice things about my account is that I think it can handle both the gappy and the glutty cases of indeterminacy, so it's systematic in, in a nice way, although in this talk I'm just going to be talking about cases that involve multiple determination at a time. Okay, before getting to the applications, I just want to face head-on the obvious question that must be occurring to lots of people. Uh, hey, wait a minute. Traditionally, a determinable instance is determined by one and only one determinate instance at a time. 
on your account, you extend this understanding to allow for determinables to be actually, or potentially anyway, multiply determined at a time, and even to be undetermined by any further determinate instance at a time. So that might seem surprising, but I will now argue that there's good independent reason to endorse this more expansive understanding of determinables and determinants, and uh, independent in particular of the usefulness of such an understanding in satisfactorily accommodating cases of seeming metaphysical indeterminacy. So, and, you know, one, one thing I could say is that, oh, we should do, we should expand this understanding because it'll be so useful for purposes of accommodating metaphysical indeterminacy. Uh, in a non-meta level kind of way, which has, you know, those approaches have their own problems. But I think I can motivate the, the resources, the apparatus of this account independent of that, you know, appeal to fruitfulness. Okay, how so? Well, uh, it seems to me that the traditional supposition, in particular that the sub- supposition that every determinable instance is determined by one and only one determinate instance at a time, I don't think that traditional supposition is always met, even for paradigmatic cases of determinables and determinants. So, you know, you've all seen those cards where if you move the card, then the eye blinks or, you know, the dog <laughs> goes up on his hind legs or something like that. I forgot to bring my prop, but everybody has seen those, right? Those cards where, depending on perspective, you see a different picture, right? Same surface, different picture. So in particular, um, well, in these cases, the idea is that the, the colors on the surface uh, of that card, that kind of card, are perspective relative. And moreover, they can be perspective relative at a time in, this, in the sense that both Anna and I could be looking at the card, and she will see one thing and I will see another, depending on our, you know, uh, our stance vis-a-vis the card. So, I suggest that the phenomenon, this phenomenon, it's just a phenomenon out there in the world, is plausibly interpreted as involving actual or potential multiple determination. Something can be red and green all over, so long as perspectival relativity can be taken or is taken into account. So, what this indicates, the possibility that I'm gesturing at, the possibility of multiple determination in the card case indicates that determination may be a relativized phenomenon relative to certain circumstances. So what determinate determines a given determinable on a given occasion may depend on specific circumstances, sometimes perspectival in the visual case, but you know, more generally, some circumstances. Moreover, the case indicates that at least sometimes multiple such circumstances may hold at the very same time, such that a single determinable instance may be determined by more than one determinate instance at that time. Hence, there is, so I claim, independent motivation for understanding determinables in such a way as to allow for relativized multiple determination. What about undeterminable? undetermined determinables. Well, once we recognize that determination may be relative to circumstances, this makes room, it seems to me, not just for determinables to be multiply determined at a time, but also for determinables to be not at all determined at a time. Well, how so? Well, if what determinate determines a given determinable depends on circumstances, 
and those circumstances can vary, we can also think, well, maybe there'll be some cases where none of the circumstances that are requisite unto determining the determinable are in place. In that case, you'd have the determinable and you wouldn't have any determinants just because none of the circumstances that are needed to, you know, make it the case that the determinable is determined one way rather than the other are in place. So, now that's just a live option. I haven't given you a case like I have given you a case in the, uh, with respect to the card. Um, that's just a concrete case that I can appeal to and point to and say that looks to me like multiple determination. I think it's harder to come up with some kind of case to independently motivate the idea that there could be undetermined determinables. But I think once you think about, start thinking about determinable-determinant relation as, as potentially being a rel, you know, relativized phenomenon, then that at least opens the door that there could be undetermined determinables and, you know, maybe a certain kind of quantum superpositions or open future states of affairs are, are sort of like that. So that's where I would ta be taking the notion of an undetermined determinable, you know, is to handle these cases where it looks like, unlike the meta-level assumption, object, meta-level assumption according to which indeterminacy always involves indeterminacy between you know, existing determinate states of affairs, what about those cases like in quantum superpositions where maybe there are no such determinate state of affairs or the open future case, etc. If you like those understandings of uh, the open future or quantum uh, superpositions, undetermined determinables give you kind of a way of making sense of that. But that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Um, I acknowledge that the idea of an undetermined determinable is more of a stretch than the idea of a multiply determined determinable. You know, that's all I'll say about that. So, is my expansion of the determinable determinant relation, or my understand, you know, the way I want to understand determinables and determinants, is this problematic? Um, I, I do reject certain of the broadly formal principles that have traditionally been uh, associated with determinables and determinants. However, I have two things to say. First, it's not as if our main route to understanding determinables and determinants and how they're related is via these formal correlational properties that whenever you have the one, you have the other, or you can't have more than one of the, the others, and so on and so forth. Um, our understanding is rather grounded in these kind of paradigm cases, right? Our attempts to characterize or analyze determinable determinant relation, our reasons for finding it interesting is because we have experience of determinables and determinants, and we, we think that whatever this relation is, it's something different than the relation that holds between a conjunct and a conjunction, or a disjunction and a disjunct, and so on and so forth. So if we do, you know, given that we do have experiential and other access to uh, cases of, the, of determinables and determinants, then, you know, our, our understanding of these, these notions has to be, you know, anchored in these cases, right? So in trying to understand these notions, we have to go where, where the facts lead. If we find a case, like the card case, which seems to involve multiple determination, we should just say, oh, well, I guess it, it looks like the determinable-determinant relation can be uh, multiply instantiated, so to speak, right? Uh, I guess it could be the case that determination is a relativized phenomenon. That's just something we should have to, we should accept. The formal principles are not doing the work here. They follow from our initial understanding. But the second, the second point I want to make is that, 
you know, even if you, uh, if you want to accommodate the potential for relativization in the determinable, determinate relation, that's, uh, you can do that while preserving the key features that have been associated with the determinable determinate relation. You just have to kind of tweak things here and there. So, for example, the contrast with other specificity relations, such as the conjunct conjunction relation, disjunction disjunct relations, that's still going to remain intact. You just have multiple instances of this different interesting relation. Uh, the principle according to which a determinable can only be singly determined at a time that will have to be tweaked to rather require that relative to a single set of circumstances. A determinable can only be singly determined, so Anna can't see the card from her same perspective as being both red and blue. Fine. Um, you know, and there's other, other ways to, uh, basically, you know, the key features can be preserved by, with, with, with comparably minor tweaking, so I don't think we lose the content that we t uh, associate with the determinable determinant relation by allowing that there could be multiple determination or allowing that there could be an, a failure of determination in a given case. Okay, so now I want to uh, turn to, to applying this account to the motivating cases of material object boundaries and uh, borderline cases. And along the way, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll argue that a determinable-based account can avoid certain of the uh, standard problems that have been raised against metaphysical indeterminacy. So let's consider Mount Everest. Intuitively, or so it seems to me, there's no precise fact of the matter about exactly where, at a given time, the spatial boundaries of Mount Everest are. And similarly for macro objects that appear to be more distinctly spati spatially individuated, such as tables, statues, cats, and the like. Intuitively, uh, so, so it seems to me, such macro objects have indeterminate boundaries. So just focus on spatial boundaries at a time. Now, does that involve metaphysical indeterminacy? Well, prima facie, it does seem to me that it's, this is a metaphysical phenomenon, not a semantic or an epistemic phenomenon. And one indication of that is the fact that macro objects have modally flexible individuation conditions. It's because Venus, uh, the spatial boundaries of Venus are genuinely indeterminate that the statue can survive the loss of its arms and so on. It's because the spatial boundaries of Tibbles, the cat, are vague that Tibbles can survive the loss of one or more hairs. So these are metaphysical issues, I think, not semantic nor epistemic. So I think there's intuitive motion, uh, intuitive motivation for taking indeterminacy and spatial boundaries to be metaphysical. And besides intuition, I think there's also an interesting scientific reason for doing so, which is that the spatial boundaries of macro objects depend on features of lower-level aggregates, which themselves are uh, standing in these long-range bound uh, bonding relations, right, fundamental interactions that, uh, whose influence is not precise but rather shades off to infinity. So you know, we are all constituted by uh, micro-aggregates that ha do not have precise boundaries. And so I just feel like either we're all the size of our light cones or the entire universe, um, you know, or else our boundaries are indeterminate, metaphysically indeterminate. So I think we've got some scientific motivation for this as well. So supposing we want to uh, accommodate these intuitions and scientific facts about 
horses, uh, I suggest that what it is for a macro entity to have a spatially indeterminate boundary is for it to have an irreducibly determinable boundary. That's basically the idea. Now, what are the associated determinants of the determinable boundary? Well, as I was just noting, material macro objects and their features, including their boundaries, constitutively depend on micro aggregates and their features. And I suggest in being spatially proximate constitutive basis of locationally less specific macro boundaries, micro boundaries are plausibly taken to be determinants of determinable macro boundaries. Moreover, reflecting that there are typically many such constitutive micro boundaries that are associated with a given macro boundary at a time, it's also characteristic of macro boundaries, or so I'm suggesting here, that they are multiply so determined. Okay. So putting these features together, the object level determinable based account of material object macro level boundary indeterminacy is as follows. What it is for a macroscopic object O to have an indeterminate boundary is for it to be determinately the case, or just plain true, that O has a determinable macro boundary P, which is multiply determined by distinct micro boundaries. So that, I think, uh, does better by way of intuition, um, especially when you contrast how uh, this a determinable base account uh, treats material object boundary indeterminacy, compare that to the meta-level account. So meta-level accounts locate metaphysical indeterminacy, again, in its being indeterminate which precise boundary a given material macro object has. But intuitively, it's determinately the case, or just plain true, that for any precise boundary, Mount Everest, for example, does not have that boundary. If someone asks you, where is Mount Everest? All you can say is, it's around here, around there. Okay? Uh, if, you, if somebody said, oh, it's exactly here, you'd say, That's, that can't be right. Proper accommodation of the metaphysical indeterminacy at issue should render it true that Mount Everest, and more generally any object with an indeterminate boundary, is not identical with any precisely boundaried object. An object-level determinable-based account does this, but meta-level accounts of whatever sort don't. They presuppose that, you know, this table has a determinate boundary. That just doesn't seem right. So where's the boundary? Some, some people might prefer a different sort of answer. You could say it's relative. So again, you could recall the, the analogy with a multiply imaged card. You could take the boundary of a material object to be relativized to those perspectives. If that's what you want to do, fine. But either way, the unrelativized boundary of a macroscopic material object is not there for any precise there. Okay. Um, that's the account. Uh, this account also, well, so it conforms to intuition, I think, and it ev evades certain pressing arguments against metaphysical indeterminacy. So recall Evans's argument um, against vague objects understood as having vague or indeterminate boundaries. Here's his argument. Suppose that A is a vague object. Then for some object B, it's indeterminacy, indeterminate whether A is identical with B. Now consider the property being indeterminately identical with A. 
B has that property, but A does not. Uh, A is determinately identical with itself. By Leibniz's law, it follows that A is not identical with B. They have different properties. And moreover, it's determinately not so identical. Contradiction with the original assumption. So again, note that the starting point of this argument is the assumption that metaphysical indeterminacy brings indeterminate identities in its wake. Meta-level accounts of metaphysical indeterminacy invite indeterminate identity because they take metaphysical indeterminacy to involve its being indeterminate which of various determinate states of affairs obtain. So that the natural thing is to say, oh, well, you know, a, object A has some boundary, but it's indeterminate to which bound, which precise boundary that boundary is identical. And uh, so meta-level accounts invite indeterminate identity, and indeterminate identity is what gives rise to the contradiction in Evans' argument. But in with respect to a determinable-based account of metaphysical indeterminacy does not in, invite indeterminate identities of this sort. So, on my account, indeterminacy just involves its being determinate that a certain determinable state of affairs obtains. As such, any indeterminate or determinable state of affairs will be determinately non-identical with any determinate state of affairs. So, uh, Evans's argument then can't get off the ground, at least as he's presented it. Another problem that's been raised against uh, material object indeterminacy is the problem of the many. And this problem arises from the fact that there appear to be, at a time, multiple equally good precise micro-aggregates, each of which might serve as the realizer of a given macro-object. So, for example, if Tibbles can survive the loss of a hair, the boundary of a cat depends on the boundary of the precise cat that constitutes it, then why aren't there two or indefinitely many cats? one for each of the candidate micro-aggregates upon which the boundary of Tibbles depends. But this problem rests on the supposition that the boundary of a given cat is determinate, such that the presence of multiple partially overlapping determinate cat constitutors appears to entail the presence of multiple partially overlapping cats. But this supposition is rejected on a determinable-based account. So I have a straightforward answer to the problem of the many. There's just one cat there, the one with the determinable boundary. <laughs> Similarly for mountains, tables, statues, and other objects that are constitutively dependent on are realized by microscopic aggregates. Okay. Um, do I have I have six minutes or so? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, I want to turn to a third problem uh, for accounts of metaphysical indeterminacy that's associated with borderline uh, or sorority-susceptible properties. So there are a bunch of puzzle cases uh, which um, have been seen as motivating metaphysical indeterminacy, but it's unclear how to treat them. These in include variety sequences for colors, borderline predicates or properties, personal identity puzzles, and the like. So um, 
I think that a terminable-based account can address these cases in kind of an interesting fashion. I'm just going to show how this works for a single, one of the cases, namely a borderline cases of baldness. And then I'm going to show how the account makes room for a principled resolution of the associated varieties paradox. So in the case of uh, case of borderline cases of baldness, I don't think there's any reasonable hope of understanding what it is for someone to be a borderline case of baldness by appeal to any meta-level accounts, um, whether they be epistemic, semantic, or metaphysical. Um, rather, I suggest that borderline baldness is a gestalt, 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 thank you, perceptual phenomenon where what it is for someone to be a borderline case of baldness is a matter of their instantiating a determinable property. Note, not baldness. Some other property, it's a determinable property that is actually or potentially multiply determined with some determinants triggering gestalt, gestalt experiences of baldness and others not doing so. So this is a determinable property. Sometimes it gets determined in such a way they're like, okay, bald. Other times, eh, not bald. Judgments that someone is a borderline case of baldness reflect, on my view, tacit or explicit recognition, recognition that different such determinations are available. So somewhat more specifically, uh, what it is for it to be metaphysically indeterminate that Hannah is bald, is for it to be determinately the case or just plain true that Hannah has a determinable property P, which is actually or potentially multiply determined in such a way that at least one determinant Q of P triggers gestalt experiences of Hannah's being bald, at least one determinant Q prime of P does not trigger such experiences. Now, um, borderline predicates, like bald, give rise to strides paradoxes. So if a person with zero hairs on their head is bald, and adding a hair doesn't make a difference to whether someone is bald or not, it's a tolerance premise, we can get ourselves into a fix whereby we end up saying that some clearly non-bald person is bald. You're all familiar with that, so I won't run through it in any more detail. A uh, determinable-based approach gives a principled way of resolving this kind of paradox. So, as previously, by analogy to the multi-image card case, when a determinable state of affairs is multiply determined, this will or can reflect different perspectives, broadly speaking, speaking taken on the determinable state of affairs. As before, multiple determination can occur without any change whatsoever in the hair landscape, as I like to think of it. <laughs> so, multiple determination can occur if there is any difference in the hair landscape. These differences can be as sudden as you like. One hair can make a difference to which determinant is perceptually salient and whether it triggers the gestalt experience of baldness. I mean, if you can have multiple determination with no change, you can certainly have different determinants associated with that determinable if there's even just a teeny tiny change. So, as such, we can reject the tolerance premise according to which, for any n, if a person with n hairs on her head is not bald, then a person with n uh, plus one, that should be hairs on her head, 
might as well, and hairs on her head is not bald. So now this is the usual way people, you know, uh, take out of the Strides paradoxes. They, they reject that premise. But what's nice here is that the account of metaphysical uh, indeterminacy gives us a principled reason for denying it. There's independent uh, understanding of what's going on uh, with this, with the case of multiple uh, determination. The account also explains why we were inclined to accept the tolerance pr uh, premise. So, the possibility that a determinable instance at a given time may be multiply determined at that time reflects that, as per the card case, circumstances relevant to the instantiation of distinct determinants may obtain at a single time, as when two people look at the card at the same time and see it as having different colors. But in the usual case, of course, individuals aren't in position to experience distinct such determinants at a single time. Hence, the possibility of relativization and the associated differences in application of a given predicate in cases of no or in cases of indiscriminably small changes in the underlying base is not immediately salient. Because typically we can't, none of us individually can take more than one perspective at a time. So there's an explanation that's located ultimately in the, the possibility of relativization of determination relation for why we have accepted the tolerance premise in this case. Okay, I want to finish up very quickly just by considering the extent to which my account is, is in particular reductive or intelligible, systematic. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Barnes and her collaborators take metaphysical indeterminacy to be metaphysically fundamental, and that's fine. No in principle problem with that supposition. Um, besides, you know, the fact that we're giving up, maybe, too easily. Yeah, but, uh, in fact, in one sense, metaphysical indeterminacy is also fundamental on my account in that I locate metaphysically fundamental indeterminacy at the object level, in the states of affairs themselves, rather than the meta-level in its being unsettled, which of the determinate states of affairs obtains. So, moreover, as I noted, uh, I think determinables can be metaphysically fundamental, or at least as fundamental as their associated determinants. So there's a sense in which um, I'm happy to, or I'm, I'm friendly to the idea that I've given a non-reductive account of metaphysical indeterminacy. On the other hand, I don't see my account as entirely primitivist either, because in appealing to the determinable, our understanding of determinables and determinants, uh, to this relation, properly understood, um, I am locating metaphysical indeterminacy in, uh, you know, using notions uh, that we arguably have claimed to both and theoretically have some grasp on. And for similar reasons, I think I have a claim to have provided an intelligible account of metaphysical indeterminacy, and, you know, that marks an advance in my view. Um, I won't go on much more about it, but I do think that, you know, to the extent that we can make sense of the the relations that I've offered as characterizing metaphysical indeterminacy, we now have, we can now understand how it could be that the world could be metaphysically indeterminate. It's just because, you know, determinables can be uh, in irreducibly part of the world, and metaphysical indeterminacy ultimately adverts to the existence of determinable states of affairs. 
And finally, although I haven't talked about the open future or quantum mechanical cases that may involve gappy metaphysical indeterminacy, uh, assuming that those, that I can in fact treat those in the way that I've suggested, then my account is systematic in providing a unified, uh, treatment of a wide range of cases of metaphysical indeterminacy. And this again is, is arguably a, it's at least potentially an advantage over meta-level accounts, which have a hard time treating gappy indeterminacy because they presuppose that there are the determinable states of affairs that are available to be referred to. And that's all for now.